Hi, Irene. Thank you so much for coming on to chat today. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, so I grew up here in the city of Boston, and my family is Chinese American. And so we ate lots of Chinese food at home um, and also all the other things that a kid can find to eat in Boston. So tons of like grilled cheese and pizza and mozzarella sticks. Um, Cheese was like a big theme. (laughs) And um, we ate, you know, kind of more classic Chinese homestyle food uh, for dinner every night, like white rice and stir fry. And it was a while before I figured out that not everybody ate that at home every night. So I definitely Mm -hmm. remember um, some sort of consciousness uh, around that developing at some point for me. Well, what did that consciousness kind of mean for you? Well, I think, you know, there were the points where I started going over to friends' houses and realizing that there was not always a rice cooker on the counter (laughs) that always had rice in it. Um, But, you know, having a lot of fun with trying different foods um, and bringing friends over to try food at my house, I feel like, you know, I was really lucky in that the friends who I had were always really interested in eating what was going on in the Lee household. You know, uh, rice porridge, um, like shifan or joe, is uh, a big feature of my childhood. So, you know, if you need to make a big pot of something and you only have a little bit of rice, that's how you do it. Um, And one of my favorite memories is taking the turkey carcass after Thanksgiving and making a big pot of rice porridge out of that. And Uh uh, I have some great memories of my friends and I just like lying on the floor of my house uh, on, you know, on this like really plush rug because we had just eaten so much rice porridge and we couldn't bear to move. Um, So there was a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you are now a chef and you work at your family's restaurant, but you did a lot of other things before you decided to do that. Can you tell us kind of what you did before that and what made you want to get into the family business? Yeah, so it's actually kind of funny. Um, The family business um, for my grandparents was owning and operating restaurants. So my um, paternal grandparents had one restaurant in New York City and then one in White Plains, New York. Um, But as is the sort of tale of so many immigrant families, um, they ran a restaurant so that their kids could pursue um, higher education. Um, And so both my parents are actually doctors. Um, Oh, wow. We we kind of joke that it skips a generation. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm fortunate in that my where I fall in the sort of generational path is um, that I had pretty much all the things that. I needed when I was growing up. And so I could sort of choose based on my, you know, sense of self-actualization to mm-hmm. go into restaurants. Um, and so my, my brother initially um, had been working in fine dining and he had this idea to open a food truck. Like he was watching way too much Food Network um, and he's definitely an ideas guy. And so it was his idea for us to open the food truck uh, in 2012. And then we opened the restaurant in 2013. So in a way, it's kind of like a full circle around um, the kind of immigrant restaurant owner story. And Mm -hmm. um, prior to opening the food truck, I was really interested in different social justice and food justice issues. Um, I was going to school in upstate New York and getting really interested in in farming um, and the kind of economics of farming and just going to the market every weekend and like buying a vegetable that I had never seen or heard of and then take it home and try to figure out (laughs) what to do with it. And so all of those things kind of collided when I got the call from my brother. Right. And, And so how does that prior experience that you had 
influence how you work in a restaurant? Yeah, well, I think that for a while, I thought of food as kind of an escape from mm-hmm. the the very sort of complicated political and, and social issues that I was interested in. Um, when I was at Cornell, I um, worked in a men's maximum security prison facility um, as a college level course instructor. Um, I was really interested in a lot of issues around um, the living wage um, and the one fair wage. And cooking on the weekends was kind of how I got away from that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But, um, of course, you know, things came full circle. And the more I got interested in food and the restaurant industry, the more I saw that a lot of these issues um, that are, you know, deeply rooted in our history of slavery in the US, um, in so many of the struggles of different immigrant groups, um, those are very much present in the restaurant industry to this day. And so I, I kind of feel like I, I came all the way around um, this corner. And now that's what's most interesting. Um, and exciting to me about the restaurant industry is addressing those issues. Right. And how, how do you do that? How do you, is it, is it something that manifests only in, you know, your writing or is it something that really manifests in the day-to-day work in the, in the kitchen and in the restaurant? Yeah. So I would say, you know, prior to COVID, we were trying to build Maymay Restaurant as a model for um, a fairer form of employment. Um, as a business that really invested in its team. And there were a few different ways that we did that. Um, We had a very, I would say, um, sort of positive culture overall. Um, You know, no yelling, no throwing things, uh, which is, you know, in a way it's kind of wild that you have to say that. But of course, we're talking about restaurant kitchens. So um, we had a, a, a staff that was typically majority um, women identifying, um, majority person of color identifying, and um, with a very big uh, LGBTQI uh, group as well. And so in a lot of ways, we were able to kind of cultivate um, this space that for the most part, you know, I hope um, and believe was, was safe for many people who may not have felt safe in other parts of the restaurant industry. We also did a lot of work to try to educate um, our staff and also our guests on how the industry really works, um, what's sort of going on under the hood. And so in early March of 2020, um, we hosted this public event where we showed everyone our profit and loss statement for 2019. Mm-hmm. And we really wanted to just kind of start a conversation about like, you know, when you buy a $20 plate of pasta, where does that money go? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think consumers are very narrowly focused on what's on the plate because it's the mm-hmm. most immediate thing. And so that's why you read so many Yelp reviews where people say, you know, I could have gone to the grocery store and paid $4 <laughs> and made this myself. And like, yeah, that's the secret of restaurants is like they're scamming <laughs> you and food costs <laughs> 20% of the menu. Um, And so that uh, financial transparency is something that we had been practicing internally with the staff for several years. Um, And so we really wanted to take that conversation kind of on the road um, and see what people would think about what the kind of realities are in the industry where the average uh, independent uh, mom and pop restaurant only clears about four to six percent profit in an, in a pretty good year. And then of course, mm-hmm. days later, the pandemic hit um, yeah. and we were all in even sort of deeper water than we were before. And what was the response like to that event from, from the public? 
The event was awesome. Um, we also <laughs> broadcasted on this thing called Zoom that I had never heard of before. <laughs> wild. Um, we got such great response, especially from the people who were able to attend in person. They asked tons of questions. And, you know, as a speaker, I, I tend to be a little bit more honest than maybe um, my my partners um, or team would want <laughs> me to be. But, you know, people asked about my salary. They asked about um, the ways that I still felt we had to improve. Um, we did a feature with Eater. And that mm-hmm. generated a lot of conversation on like Facebook. Um, and some of it was, you know, not entirely positive, but even that felt great. Um, like, yeah, if you think I'm a moron because of what my books say, like, let's talk about it. Like you can <laughs> read your books or we can just have a conversation. And all of that felt really generative. And so how did the pandemic kind of change the way you ran the ritz, the restaurant and the business model? I know that a lot of restaurants that didn't have a tipping model that had a kind of hospitality included model and were more transparent, you know, around the business side of the restaurant and, and you know, those those tiny profit margins kind of weathered this switch a little bit better simply by the nature of their you know, how they ran their businesses and by how they, um, you know, how much money was in the bank because they knew they had a big payroll anyway. Like, you know, but how did the pandemic kind of come hit your restaurant and, and how has it been in the over a year since? Yeah. So initially, um, I will say, you know, going back to having two parents who are doctors, um, we were very <laughs> conservative about about closing down and not asking anyone to come into work. Um mm-hmm. We really did our best to keep people employed as long as we could. So there were some restaurants that laid everyone off in March, um, and we kept um, almost all of the team employed through, uh, through June. And then we laid off about two-thirds of the team at that time. And that is probably one of the worst things I've ever had to do in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at that point, we were kind of looking around and saying, oh, okay, you know, the pandemic's not getting better. Um, it's been a couple months and it's actually getting worse because we're seeing what's happening um, in other parts of the country that, you know, maybe we thought like no one would be as hard hit as New York City, for instance, Mm -hmm. Um, but things looked really bad. And so at that point we made the decision, um, I guess I made the decision with the help of of my partners and my team that we weren't going to reopen Maymay as a restaurant. And that had to do with a lot of different things, um, including the timing of our lease, which we felt like didn't really allow us the time that we would need to rebuild. And so that, in addition to the fact that there was just so much uncertainty, we decided we were going to take things in a different direction. And so now we are evolving Maymay into a packaged dumpling company. Um, is a really exciting project. And I have partners now who are going to sort of carry that forward, um, which has been amazing for me because it's opened up the opportunity for me to work more on supporting other restaurants. So mm-hmm. I joined Commonwealth Kitchen, um, which is a food business incubator here in Boston as a program manager for a, a, an initiative called the Restaurant Resiliency Program. And I work with eight Black and Latinx business owners um, to strengthen and improve uh, their restaurant businesses. And it honestly, like, it's just my dream job. 
Um, <laughs> how much of it is is about not not teaching them, you know, basics or mechanics, but really being there with them and making sure they have the confidence to do what they need to get done. Um, so I just uh, I just ordered um, eight kitchen scales, and I'm like so excited to visit the <laughs> restaurant and do some costing, and you know, really kind of get get up to my elbows with them. Um, and so for me, that really feels like trying to take what I learned from Maymay and, you know, the mistakes that I made, the mistakes that I could afford to make um, as someone from a a privileged background coming into the restaurant industry um, and really trying to pay that forward um, to support uh, an industry that I hope will be made up of really diverse restaurants um, run by really interesting people with a a lot of different stories. Um, I think it's, it's funny at the event last March, I said, you know, if Maymay doesn't exist in 10 years, that's too bad for me. But mm-hmm. if there aren't any cool independent restaurants to eat at in 10 years, like then I'm going to be really pissed. And yeah. so for me, it's always been more about the industry at large and the the restaurants that I want to be able to eat at um, than my business specifically. Right. And, you know, what do you think um, the, you know, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, the government inaction during the pandemic in, in order to help independent restaurants. What do you think in the future, either from what you've learned running Maymay or now in your new position, um, to what could be useful to small business owners in the food industry um, from a governmental, from a policy standpoint, really? Man, where to start? I think that, um, <laughs> there's so many different different things that that could be done. I guess for me, um, having access to uh, federal aid um, and even state aid, um, getting assistance to fill out, you know, the payroll protection program application. Um, like I, I am college educated and I <sighs> could barely get myself through that. So like, right. I, I can't imagine, you know, not speaking English as a first language, for example, and trying to wade through all of that. So I think offering the the technical support is really key. I think the government, the federal government learned a big lesson with the payroll protection program in that there are going to be large companies that take advantage of opportunities because they are qualified, uh, you know, on paper. Um, But if you're really looking to help small businesses, then you have to be targeting companies that are, you know, posting revenue below a million annually, for example. Um, I have been so moved to be involved in different mutual aid efforts, um, you know, whether it is a community fridge or a grocery program or just, you know, neighbors helping each other uh, navigate government paperwork. Um, and so honestly, like, it's hard for me to, to imagine what better government support looks like because the mm-hmm. swell of people just saying, you know, fuck it, we have to figure this out ourselves. Um, that has been really exciting to me. Um, I will say I am really optimistic about the American, um, rescue plan, um, mm-hmm. and the opportunities that are built in there for restaurants. I am very hopeful, cautiously optimistic, that that money will go to the restaurants who really need it. And I think what is exciting about the way that that bill is formed is that uh, if you didn't get any PPP money, you can get more money from this plan. Um, So hopefully that will help address some of the barriers that especially um, immigrant restaurant owners and Black and Latinx restaurant owners are facing. 
And, you know, as you're kind of getting into this, this mode of helping other small business owners not make mistakes, do you have, you know, what are like the top three <laughs> mistakes that people make when they're getting into the restaurant business and making all these decisions? I think all of it ultimately comes down to how often they're looking at the numbers and mm -hmm. how the numbers are organized. So, I mean, I've observed over the years that a lot of small businesses, um, you know, early on, they're not paying attention to the bills necessarily, or they're paying the bills, but they're not organizing them. And maybe like every invoice just goes into a shoebox. And then at the end of the year, you give the shoebox to your accountant and say like, here mm -hmm. you go. Um, <laughs> but you know, having a, a profit and loss statement that is organized in a way that actually helps you make decisions, um, that is a, a luxury that not all businesses have invested in or have the resources for. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's a version of your financials that's just for taxes, and everybody has to have those every year. But there's also a version that provides a readout on how your business is doing that is so valuable. Um, I think Restaurant owners are incredibly smart and they their instincts are usually pretty dead on, but there are a lot of little kind of details and finer points like, should we close an hour earlier? Um, should we open on Mondays? Should I take this dish off the menu? Like those are questions that they, they can rely on their gut to some extent, um, but it's not going to get them necessarily to the point where they're really thinking about growing the business if they don't have the data to rely on. And so, you know, I'm so lucky that I had a team that was really invested in getting the financials to the point where they would be useful. We also had a grant from the state of Massachusetts to work with a consulting firm that helped us implement open book management. And I am now at the point where I am like so excited to see the profit and loss statement every month because it's like, yeah, I want to know how I did. Um, mm -hmm. And so I want, I, I hope that every restaurant owner can experience that excitement um, and not just sort of the stress around putting financials together and then trying to read them. Yeah, I think that that's probably a problem for a lot of independent <laughs> workers. Definitely. Speaking for myself as well, is that you yeah. you don't like to look at the money because you're afraid of looking at it. When it's it it really is. I've learned so much better to just be aware and kind of go full on and and try and really understand what you're doing. But oh, it's easier said than done. <laughs> One of the other challenges in there that I'm sure applies to to a lot of people in different lines of work is that you know, as a business owner, like for a long time, I didn't really know what accountants and bookkeepers did. Right. right. And so I didn't really have a way of telling like, are you doing a good job or not? Um, it's kind of like when I take my car to the mechanic, right. And like, I don't know yeah. anything about cars. And so I kind of just shrug my shoulders and say like, okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, and so I think some of what we're doing through this program is, is kind of teaching the restaurant owners how to speak accountant or how to speak bookkeeper right. um, and to give them confidence in those relationships. And I think, you know, for some of these folks, they do not have the, the confidence, you know, working with um, professional services to really say like, hey, this is what I need. This is how I want you to do it. Um, and so they're going with the flow, but it's maybe not as useful as it could be. Right. Well, you know, before I ask specifically about a couple of the pieces you've recently published, I wanted to ask what inspired you to start 
writing about certain issues in the restaurant industry? Is it, do you like writing? Did you, <laughs> or is it, is it more about something that like, you just feel there, there are things that need to be said? Yeah, I will say I love writing. Um, I am so in awe of anyone who can do it on a schedule. Um, because <laughs> I, I really have to be in the right place um, with the right idea to produce anything. Um, I did write for the local um, public radio station, WBUR, um, for a few months. And that was great experience just in terms of, you know, working with an editor and on deadline and all of that. And I think I figured out that it wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in this case, I usually write when I feel moved to. And usually that is when I feel like, there's a story that's not being told or a perspective that's not getting shared. Um, mm -hmm. So often it comes from a place of wanting to tip the scales of a conversation um, or make sure that, you know, things don't get left unsaid. Right. And, and one of those pieces that you wrote is the, a bit of satire called eight totally achievable ways to show up for racial justice when you're white and own an Asian restaurant. And, you know, I wanted to know how, how did you arrive and feel inspired to tackle that subject from a satirical angle? And, you know, I mean, this is a subject that's been written on. This is a subject that is, you know, <laughs> just, um, you know, shockingly persistent in, in the, you know, white dudes owning Asian restaurants. That's, yeah. that's very persistent. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I guess the, the reason you, you maybe wanted to approach it that way is because it is like at this point, such a joke and a, and a, um, you know, a trope, a cliche. Um, but you know, yeah. What, what inspired you to go about it that way? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've said, as I've talked a little bit more about the piece is um, like, I've been writing this piece in my head for years. So mm -hmm. um, it didn't come out of nowhere, but I, I guess it came out of my my desire to engage on this topic that typically is not really engaged on. It's more like um, a, an unstoppable force hits an immovable object and, you know, yeah. he says, hey, you can't cook that. And then that person says, yes, I can. I can cook whatever I want. And then the conversation goes nowhere. And actually... Um, everyone, you know, leaves that discussion feeling angry or resentful. And then I don't think we get anywhere productive right. out of that. And so, especially in getting involved in the restaurant industry myself, I felt like, you know, these chefs are, they're not bad people. It's not about whether they're good or bad. Um, and there's actually maybe some really important conversation and exploration that we can do here. Um, and so my goal in writing the piece was, in part, um, to share my views without alienating anyone. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that's always necessarily the purpose of writing, but it felt like something that I could do um, pretty effectively. I, I went to prep school, um, and so I feel like I, I have been educated all my life in how to talk to well-meaning white people about <laughs> how to do better. Um, and so I think that you know. I wanted to write a piece where by the end of it, you couldn't really disagree with me. <laughs> I mean, of course, mm -hmm. a lot of people did, um, which is fine. But, you know, I wanted to, to sort of take the reader by the hand and be like, okay, let's go look at this thing together. Um, and so, you know, I didn't use the phrase cultural appropriation, which I didn't right. realize until after <laughs> I had written it. Um, but I think that 
you know, I wanted to accept that there is both something very complicated and uncomfortable about this topic. And at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that most of us just agree on. Like racism is bad and taking credit for other people's stuff is bad. And so how do you kind of weave those very simple truths in with this very complicated, scary territory? Um, And so my hope was to kind of lead the reader through that space so that they could come out on the other side feeling like, you know, not like, oh, I'm, I'm now bereft of my, my purpose and everything I've created is, is for naught, um, but to make them feel like, oh, like there are some next steps I can take and I can keep showing up to this conversation and be part of it. Um, all of that being said, I did get a lot of calls from people who were like, I read your article. It made me think so much. And I'm just wondering, like, what do you think I should do? And I would be like, well, um, I did write a list. So like, let's start there. And, you know, I think that 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 kind of response is about what I expected. And I think it's totally appropriate for someone who has never really engaged with these ideas to come right to me and say, like, help. Um, And so I I welcome that. And I I'm glad that they wanted to call me and talk to me. Um, But it's just so new to some people that even after reading a list of eight things that you can do, um, the question is like, wait, what, what am I, sorry, now, like how, where do I, and, and all of that is just, it's fascinating to watch. And, you know, I, as you mentioned, you did not mention, use the phrase cultural appropriation, which I think actually did, did, did serve the piece to make it a bit more powerful because you didn't, it was so straightforward and cultural appropriation as a phrase and as a concept, I think has been, you know, it's, it's screwed over as an idea because of the right and the way that the right has taken it and uh, suggested that its meaning is something that it's not. So, I mean, what, yeah, I think, and that's just ruined it because no one can say it anymore without being like, called you know, I, I don't know what the I don't know how the right talks anymore <laughs> I just know that they they like to take phrases and just be like look at what they're saying they're saying you you can't cook uh, you know uh, like if you're white you can't make a burrito in your house and it's like dude how dare you <laughs> like yeah. that's not it yeah. um and so like how does how does that phrase play into your life right now or thinking at all about food I guess to me, the phrase invites a lot of argument. Um, yeah, because it is it, it it invites opinion and um, asks for nuance, and um, sometimes those two things don't go hand in hand. Um, and so, you know, while part of me wanted to write um, eight ways for cultural appropriators, I felt like <laughs> okay, like if I really want to get the attention of the people I'm talking to. Let me use phrases and facts that they can't argue with. Like, are you white? Yes or no. (laughs) Do you own an Asian restaurant? Yes or no. Um, And so, yeah, my hope was to kind of get my foot in the door with that and um, to not, you know, to try not to make um, kind of value or moral judgments about them Um, Mm -hmm. and to just say like, hey, you know, you, you meet these qualifications. So maybe we should talk about this thing. Um, And, you know, I've had some really great conversations with white folks who own Asian restaurants. And Mm -hmm. I am hopeful that 
this conversation goes somewhere. Um, my incredible friend, Tracy Chang, who, who is um, a restaurant owner in Cambridge, she said to me, you know, just make sure they know it's not Monopoly, where you land on community chest and the card says like, ooh, mass shooting, pay, uh, you know, pay an Asian American organization $500 and then go on your way. Um, And so I think the longer term accountability is, is another really interesting piece of this that I'm, I'm hoping to be able to, to sort of keep up with. Right. And, you know, how does, you know, the writing, you also wrote about raise the wage, um, you know, what is your involvement in that? What And why did you decide to get into that? Yeah, well, I've been um, working with uh, the Restaurant Opportunities Center and um, High Road Restaurants, which is um, their sort of employer side organization on um, the campaign around one fair wage. Um, so in both wanting to raise the minimum wage and abolish the sub-minimum wage, um, which is what servers are paid if they receive tips. So federally, the sub-minimum wage is $2.13 an hour. And um, locally in Massachusetts, I believe it's $5.55 an hour. And, you know, the piece that we wrote on Medium um, was from a a group of Asian American women uh, talking about how these laws disproportionately affect women and people of color. And so in Mm -hmm. a way, there's kind of a similar message, which is like, do you like racial equity? And do you think that the way people are paid should support racial equity? And then like, if you do, which I'm sure you do, the only logical conclusion is that we have to change tipping policy in this country. Um, Of course, it's not that simple. uh, But I think that to me, you know, the motivation for changing the way we do things is so clear. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping to get more involved in that conversation, even though I'm not uh, a restaurant employer anymore. I actually mm-hmm. feel like maybe I can play um, a different role in that community and in uh, highlighting this issue. Right. And for you, is cooking a political act? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> cooking um, is is partially political. What really feels political is when I feed other people. Um, so mm-hmm. if you kind of wrap that in, then, then I would say definitely. Um, I think that we so undervalue food and everything that goes into it. I think that is deeply tied to the history of slavery in this country, and, you know, the way that that capitalism works now. Um, but I think that for me, cooking is a way to imbue food with the value of my time, of my love and energy. And, um, you know, that you can literally bring people to the table and, and make them uh, or ask them to listen or to um experience your perspective. I think that that's like what the magic of food is for me. And, um, you know, working with a lot of um, immigrant restaurant owners in particular, I think that the storytelling that happens through food is is 100% political. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.